It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, November 21st, the Stiff Upper Lip Edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of the podcast, Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right, we have one order of business today before we get into our very juicy episode. We are taking submissions of Is It Sexist questions for our annual call-in show. It's going to run the week before Christmas and New Year's. Uh, It's going to be full of your Is It Sexist questions. We do this every year. You can call in with your questions at 973-826-0318, and we might use your voice on the show, but you can remain anonymous if you please. Uh, Your deadline to submit the questions is December 15th. You can also email them to thewavesatslate.com. If you must, but we really would love to hear your voices. Again, that number is 973-826-0318 with your Is It Sexist questions. All right. This week, we are going to kick things off with The Crown, the Netflix show whose third season dropped this week. Then we're going to talk about the impeachment inquiry hearings. And for our third topic, we are talking about a survey of college students on hooking up and the question of whether hookup culture, quote unquote, is a white thing. And Marsha, what's our Slate Plus segment this week? Our Slate Plus segment this week asks, is it sexist to dismiss young adult fiction as just for teenage girls? Here's a little clip of that conversation. Literacy culture is feminized to the point where we are struggling to think, oh, do boys read young adult fiction? Do they read it all? Right? I mean, it's the same way that um, in my field, you know, the Father's Day gift books are history books. So history books are military history, the history of the gun, barbecue books, sports history. And that's the only time men are supposed to engage in history. Come on, they can read about founding fathers. (laughs) Oh, and founding fathers. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can and should start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, The Crown. It's a Netflix series about a queen. June, please take it away. I right. hate to pigeonhole you, but please intro <laughs> this topic. You know, the success of The Crown has got me a lot of gigs on a lot of podcasts. So even though I am an ardent Republican, in this sense, this show has been great for me. Um, yeah, so The Crown... Uh, Season three, as you said, just started. It's Peter Morgan's multi-decade, multi-season story of the life and times of Queen Elizabeth II, who came to the throne, as you all will recall, in 1952 at the tender age of 25. And every season of 10 episodes uh, looks at 10 events in British history. And this new season starts in 1964 and imagines... The royal family's interactions with politicians. There's a new Labour government uh, that has just been elected. And the Queen is suspicious of the new Northern Prime Minister, who's also a socialist, of course. Some episodes look at like interpersonal issues among the members of the royal family. Some look at events in the life of the country, like the Aberfan disaster in 1966. And in many ways, they're kind of a cockeyed look at British history. And the main characters, um, the ones who endure over the seasons, are the Queen, her husband, Prince Philip, uh, her sister, Princess Margaret, and now her children, especially the, the two older ones, Anne and Charles. And one thing that's happened in this season is that as the Queen has gotten older uh, and more established in her reign, she's been played by a new actress. So at the beginning of episode one of this season, we had a very cute scene in which uh, the new queen, played by Olivia Coleman, was introduced because uh, she was taken to see the new portrait that will appear on British stamps. And I think we can actually hear a clip from that. So here's Olivia Coleman taking no guff from people revealing her new, slightly more mature portrait. 
Everyone at the post office is delighted with the new profile, ma'am, which they feel to be an elegant reflection of Her Majesty's transition from young woman to... Old bet. A mother of four and settled sovereign. Mm. The Postmaster General himself commented that the two images, the young and the slightly older Queen, are almost identical. Postmaster Bevins is very kind. He's also a barefaced liar. Uh, just the tiniest changes in the hair. A great many changes. But there we are. Age is rarely kind to anyone. Nothing one can do about it. One just has to get on with it. June, I would be remiss if I did not ask, as a, a, a current or maybe former British subject, I don't know how you identify, uh, how did you feel the show portrayed the monarchy? Well, of course, there is a little bit of a propaganda aspect to this, like it's PR for the royals uh, mm-hmm. in a very real way. But I have to say that I really enjoy this kind of very popular, very generalist, very unrigorous, like, bit of history um there was you know there's i love that feeling like it's it's that thing that's great in like kind of mediocre television or any art really where you can kind of flatter yourself by recognizing situations or people or you know as soon like in episode one we hear the story of anthony blunt who was you know the keeper of the queen's pictures who was famously one of the cambridge five who was actually unmasked in like 1979 and this show suggests, I suppose it's true, uh, that he was actually discovered as a spy in the early 60s. And so as soon as somebody was referred to as Sir Anthony and there was a picture of a painting, I was like, oh, Anthony Blunt. And like, that's good. Like, you feel good about yourself. You know, like, hey, I'm clever. I got that reference. And there's a lot of that that I really enjoy. And now we're at, not to give it my decrepit age away but like I was alive for this season and I know these events and especially like Abervan was really like honestly a very terrible thing for us because let's make it about me uh you know I lived in a mining village and our slag heap was right opposite our house and my uh, my school was at the end of the street and I feel like we should maybe describe for the listeners quickly what it is I this was a a mining village where uh, there was a, a tragic sort of a landslide when water saturated a heap of rubbish from coal mining. It slid down and 144 people were killed, most of them children. Yeah. And so that was, you know, actually it, it was, I, I knew about it because the, the 50th anniversary was relatively recent. So it had been in my head, but it really did kind of grab me in the way that it did when I was a kid. Like we were really scared and our pit was still open then. And, and you know, like it did take me back to that. Um, at the same time, it also didn't really deal with the true tragedy of mm-hmm. Abervan, which was, you know, the way that the coal board didn't really compensate them, that they refused to clear the slag heaps that, that were still there, uh, which traumatized the residents there. So they don't they didn't really deal with the, how bad it it was like this moment that involved the queen. But then we didn't go back to God, you know, Abervan was an enduring tragedy that, you know, really only has kind of come to an end in a sense in, in very recent years. Um, but yeah. I, I, I also admit that I really kind of love the show. I, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm clicking next very easily. What about you guys? What about you um, non, non-Brits? <laughs> I've never, I had never seen the show before. So I started in season three because why not? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this was really fascinating. I am not super into... Um, I don't know, these long period piece series, because often um, when I'm familiar with the history, I'm Mm. such a pain in the ass about correcting it. But because I don't know about tons of British history, I guess I can enjoy it a little bit um, more. One of the things I think I noticed about this um, series, it's kind of like that Margaret Thatcher movie that um, Meryl Streep did. Mm. There's this idea of how do you humanize figures that stoicism is supposed to be their kind of strength. And Mm -hmm. all of this stuff in the British tabloids about Meghan Markle not being able to kind of keep up with the royal expectation of the British stiff upper lip was really front and center in my mind as I watched this. And this idea of a queen mother that is supposed to have the adoration of her subjects 
um, you know, domestic and colonial. And then maternalism is not considered one of the characteristics she's supposed to portray. I think the series did a good job of thinking about the complexity of how does the British royal family, on one hand, um, serve as supposed to be they're supposed to be the family of all in terms of the authority. But on the other hand, all of the kind of softness of family seems to be the real struggle in their public um, engagement. And so Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, The acting is superb, of course, Mm -hmm. and Olivia Coleman's amazing and the costuming is excellent. And the guy they found to play LBJ, I think was really good. Um, But on the whole, I think it's interesting that you called it propaganda, June, because I don't know, are we supposed to be more sympathetic or more irritated Mm, with them after we watch this? I certainly felt more sympathetic, and but was very aware of that fact and resented the show for making me more sympathetic <laughs> of them. Um, I, I felt like the Abervan episode was a really good uh, sort of microcosm of what I found both compelling and also really irritating about the series, which is that, um, you know, the whole conflict of that episode isn't about the coal board. I mean, there, there's some mention of like the political element to this, which mm-hmm. reminded me a little bit about the way people talk about gun control after mass yeah. shootings in the U.S. Um, but the whole conflict of that episode is like, is the queen going to visit? Is she going to cry? You know, they want her to cry. Will she be able to cry? And the end of the episode is this big buildup of tension where the whole episode builds up to like, could the queen shed a tear? And it's like, it's such a small conflict when, when actually like people's lives were lost and, and, and many more people's lives were um, like profoundly devastated by this tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it was just a reminder to me of how much ink has been spilled on like the inner lives and palace intrigue of the royal family relative to those of their subjects. And it kind of made me hate myself for being interested (laughs) in, I mean, I really enjoyed the series. I too am clicking next, next, next. Um, And it made me hate myself for being interested in that sort of like behind the scenes of this terrible relic of colonialism. Um, And it did bother me that, you know, at the end of that episode, there was the little text on screen that was like, the queen considers her failure to visit sooner, one of her greatest regrets. I'm like, am I watching like a, an endorsed biography of the queen right now? I, I didn't want to feel so much sympathy for them or be so invested in like the slight emotional turmoil of a queen who is sad that she's unable to cry. Yeah. What do you think, Nicole? Um, this was my first time watching The Crown. I'm not interested in British royalty by in any way at all. <laughs> I I don't even care for um, any other kind of political machination show or whatever. I'm not, you know, like it took me, I, I only watched like Game of Thrones just because I felt like I had to. Um, so stuff like that re- normally does not intrigue me, but I was definitely um, fascinated by this series. So um, particularly the Aberfan episode, um, because it, I too felt, are we supposed to feel sympathetic for this woman who has been so, I don't know, repressed or like pushed into this role where she's not allowed to express um, any kind of emotion. And, um, you know, I did understand why she did not want to go to the site because the rescue workers would be, um, you know, distracted by all of the rules that they needed to, you know, display in order to showcase the proper respect to her or whatever. And that would be distracting. Like, I don't want to have to bow every time I see the queen. I'm trying to dig out, you know, bodies here. So I understood that. But um, that ending of trying to, you know, waiting to see if she would cry or not, the choices that they made there, I felt that was forcing audience reaction almost as much as we were trying to figure out if the <laughs> queen was going to force some emotion out. Um, but I, I, Talk to Nicole Cliff, who is one of the uh, advice columnists for Care and Feeding here at Slate, who is doing, um, she's covering all the recaps at The Decider of, of The Crown. And she was giving me like episodes that I needed to go back and check out, you know, because this was, again, my first time watching it. And so I went back to some of those first season episodes. And I'm just like, wow, this is uh, much more interesting than I expected. I thought the cinematography, the direction is incredible. Costuming seems um, 
fantastic. I'm not normally a, a costume person either, but it just looks really good. Um, so I'm definitely going to go back and start over from the beginning and keep it going. And I may even recommend it to people. That's how much yeah. I enjoyed it. It was really I'm I'm surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, I will say it's a credit to Peter Morgan, the showrunner, that he is able to gin up emotion and tension from a character whose defining characteristic is her like inability to showcase emotion in part because of the person she is but also in part because of the strictures placed on her by expectations of the queen and the fact that we don't know what she's like i mean nobody knows except maybe the people are so it's a lot of projection it's a lot of imagination it's a lot of wouldn't it be great if um, and that, but also that means that you can't ever be corrected. Unlike the history, though, he's like, well, they said that happened in '69, it happened in '67. Like, no, we can't correct mm-hmm. this. Any version of the Queen is correct because no one knows. So, Nicole, you're saying how you have no interest in the royal family. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by them to an extent. Um, because what I think is interesting about the kind of, I guess, my generation of royals, there's this whole um, thing about Princess Diana really resonating with older black women, and they were like distraught when she died. Well, my generation of royals, I guess, would be uh, Kate and William. And I do think there's one fascinating thing about the royal family that I will go on the record saying, and please don't at me. <laughs> I think the one thing that is kind of cool is that they are an example of a family that went through a horrible traumatic situation as a result of bending to tradition, that is Charles and Diana's marriage, and then they made different choices in a future generation, Hmm. which no one can do. But Hmm. I think this is kind of the fascinating part of the story that um, William married a woman that he met in school who was just a simple party supply millionaire, um, (laughs) you know, which is like modest in his eyes that they actually dated that unlike their parents, there wasn't some kind of fix that was in where Prince Charles had to marry a virgin. So he marries a 19 year old woman, right? Like when we think about what did you say? I said in a Protestant, like it's so hard to find a suitable royal because there are very few Protestant royals. But exactly right. So, so they, they had, had to, to settle for on the hunt, uh, right? Yeah. But to and for he, a they blew up their marriage, and he ended up with someone he really wanted to be with. And his kids were able to choose their partner. I mean, listen, I don't give the royals lots of credit, <laughs> but I do think there was something really fascinating about people who are able to break within that tradition. And then I guess the poignancy of their story is sometimes that's the limits of those breaks. So other people have married non-royals and abdicated, um, you know, their rights. But I I think that there is something to think about how these structures tolerate, right, the winds of change and how they adapt to it or how they react to it. And I think that if anything about the crown that it's trying to demonstrate is perhaps the rumblings of that in the iteration of the royals that we know today. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of go back to the... uh, the blank wall of emotion that we have to project <laughs> onto mm-hmm. these people. And there was a line in um, one of the um, interviews with Peter Morgan, and he talks about the unsettling ambiguity of talking to Prince Charles because he wasn't sure if Prince Charles was insulting him, reprimanding him, or praising him. <laughs> and I, I think that is part of what makes me so into the show mm-hmm. is wondering what the hell does this mean? And trying to figure out, um, you know, is this me projecting this? Are these just my thoughts or whatever? It's kind of, it reminds me of like, uh, you know, a Muppet show, you know, <laughs> the, the Muppets, where obviously these Muppets do not have any kind of, uh, you know, their features don't show any kind of emotion, but we know that when they're turning to the camera to look at us a certain way, that we need to know that they're upset or irritated or they're just kind of like frustrated or whatever, you know, because we know how the conversation is supposed to flow here. So looking at the actors, and again, Olivia Coleman is so good. Mm-hmm. She's so good. Looking at all the ways that these people try to cut each other without, you know, any inflection in their in their voice at all. <laughs> I am so fascinated by that. I love it so much. Yeah, I need to to develop that skill too. That where you know, I could be interpreted as reprimanding or praising at any given moment. All right. I think that's all the time Goals. we have for the crown. Watch it on Netflix. Listeners, let us know what you think. Did it make you more sympathetic to the monarchy, an indefensible institution? Let us know. The waves at slate.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first public hearings in the congressional impeachment inquiry began last week. I should say we're taping this week's episode a little early on Tuesday afternoon. There's a hearing going on right now. So apologies if we are at all outdated and if something egregiously sexist happens while we're taping this or afterwards. Um, So just to briefly summarize what's been going on, Democrats have been attempting to document how Trump tried to withhold appropriated military aid to Ukraine unless the Ukrainian president opened an investigation into Joe Biden and his son. There's a lot here, but we're going to focus our discussion on two of the most memorable participants to emerge from the hearings thus far. Marie Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who was removed from her job on basically no notice because she was insufficiently deferential to Trump and refused to play along, among other things. Uh, The other character or, you know, human (laughs) is uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Republican from New York who, uh, with her political allies, is trying to say that she was the victim of a sexist bout of silencing. So in the hearing, um, Devin Nunes tried to yield some of his time to Stefanik, who is uh, a newly elected congresswoman. Um, Congressional rules, blah, blah, blah. Actually, he couldn't recognize her. She got her chance to speak later, but she wanted to speak then. So Adam Schiff, who is a Democrat running the hearings, was saying, like, no, it's actually not your turn to speak now. We have a little clip of the moment that everyone's been talking about. Yield to you, Ms. Stefanik. Thank you, Mr. Nunez. Ambassador Yovanovitch, thank you for being here today. The gentlewoman will suspend. What is the interruption for this time? It is our time. The gentlewoman will suspend. You're not recognized. Mr. Nunez, you are minority counsel. I just recognized. Under the House Resident 660, you are not allowed to yield time except to minority counsel. The ranking member yielded time to another member of Congress. That is not accurate. You're gagging the young lady from New York. Ambassador Yovanovitch, I want to thank you for being here today. Gentlewoman will suspend. You're not recognized. This is the fifth time you have interrupted members of Congress, newly elected members of Congress. A woman will suspend. So the reaction to this moment in the hearings has been pretty split along party lines, if you can believe it. Shocking. Uh, (laughs) A lot of people on the right have been saying that Schiff's silencing of Stefanik was sexist. Um, Devin Nunes kind of got at that in the moment when he said, you're gagging the young lady from New York, which, you know, the fact that he called her a young lady, we could talk about that for a whole episode. But um, And Stefanik is now tweeting, the radical left will continue their sick attacks on me. George Conway called Stefanik trashy. Nikki Haley said that was disgusting and pathetic. It's like just a little bit of drama happening over this moment of silencing. I want to ask you guys what you think about it. And also, was it sexist? So I'm not prone to defend men a lot ever. But no one goes after Mr. Adam Schiff. (laughs) 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 I will not tolerate it. I think he is the most even-tempered human being I have ever seen. He is the only person who speaks the American people like adults. And I think that part of what happened there is a really interesting example of the way that the entire Republican strategy for this impeachment hearing is smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. So it's blame the media, investigate the Bidens. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. So it doesn't surprise me that they felt like there was an opportunity in this exchange, knowing probably pretty well that it was um, that Stefanik would not be allowed to speak because it was not her opportunity, mm-hmm. right? But I think what happens um, with the weaponizing of sexism, it shows the way that part of the um, approach is to then make sure that you can't actually address sexism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's it's cheap. But one of the things I also think it's interesting is then the opportunity for other types of sexism to emerge. And so we lose sight of what the original issue was. Yeah. And so it's no longer about 
the Republicans' disingenuous behavior, and it wasn't part of Adam Schiff actually enforcing the rules that he's allowed to enforce, it can become this battle of the wills where then you have to talk about George Conway's being inappropriate, Mm -hmm. and why is Nikki Haley chirping in, and then Stefanik becomes the rising star of the party. (laughs) I mean, and I actually think, uh, though, Marsha, that maybe Adam Schiff's calmness was not to his advantage or to the Democrats' advantage in this case, though, because, as you say, what was going on there was that Nunes and Stefanik were pulling a stunt. They knew that the rules did not allow him to yield his time to her, Mm -hmm. that he could only yield his time to the staff council. And that was clear and that had been agreed on. And yet Schiff would just say, that's not allowed. And he would be calm. And they were like doing hysterics. They were like, oh, my God, this is so sexist. And like he really should have said, stop playing games, you guys. You know, the you know, and he, Listen, I mean, this is always his problem. He is not an asset to anyone but me. I love how <laughs> even he is. But this is why I think he would be a great presidential candidate. This guy can't run for president because he's so even. And I think you're absolutely right. It's because he's like impervious to the theatrics it then causes more problems. Yeah. I mean, I have to hand it to the Republicans for knowing that this moment would be easily clippable out of context and that it's really hard. I mean, I just had a very hard time even summarizing it for this podcast. Like, it's hard to understand exactly what the issue was, why she was being gaveled, why it was appropriate. Uh, and and so they just wanted to create their little, like, nevertheless, she persisted mm-hmm. moment and that it would be passed around out of context and that people would just see, like, this older white man, uh, you know, people on the right who are, like, really excited to have their own moment to say that they are being victimized by sexism are going to see this, the optics of this, and think, like, aha, here's our opportunity to say the Democrats are ginormous hypocrites. Yeah, I think this is... Um you know, a prime example of the Republicans wanting a show. There was so much um, coverage saying that, oh, the impeachment hearings so far are boring. They're not really splashy enough to cover and all this kind of stuff. Well, here we are. Now we have something to talk about and, and, you know, kind of fuss over. And it definitely reminds me of the way um, far-right people on social media will weaponize the language of woke people you know um to say oh well now you're you're silencing me you're you're pushing me into a corner i need a safe space you know all this kind of stuff they're where they're clearly mocking and then also using these tools to their advantage and it serves to uh, to marcia's point it serves to like weaken those words and those concepts you know they're trying to sort of muddy the waters exactly and that, this situation, you know, no, I don't think it was sexist. Um, Stefanik was able to eventually have her say. Um, when she said nothing. Worth right. Saying. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I do think like further that um, when Marie Yovanovitch was, you know, being questioned and they just kept focusing on her feelings. How did it feel? You know, were your feelings hurt or whatever? And that's sexist. I mean, like... And that was the Democrats. Yeah, like, that that was ridiculous. Like, let her talk about the facts of the matter and move forward. Yeah. I think part of the problem with this whole impeachment proceeding for most Americans, um, their reference point for impeachment may be um, Watergate, Hmm. Um, but they don't know the kind of granular details of Watergate. So there's no cohesive narrative of what's the problem. Like this whole thing with Ukraine, I really wonder if voters on an everyday basis can perceive what the problems were in it, because it involves uh, these issues about foreign aid, about diplomacy. It's a little in the weeds. Unlike the Clinton impeachment, if it was just about sex, which it wasn't just about sex, but sex made it, I guess, more interesting or more understandable that there was a breach within the White House. And so I'm just curious if part of what the Democrats have failed to really grasp is if this hearing is supposed to be about a public case, how do you then create compelling characters? And if part of it is Jovanovic is this really dedicated public servant who was stripped of her opportunity and now has to settle for just a fellowship at Georgetown <laughs> University, which is a weird thing that was you know bandied about, how do you present that to a voter um, who thinks that maybe if this hearing isn't titillating, then maybe it's not important. I, I, I don't quite know how they ap- address that. Actually, I just sort of disagree with um, 
Nicole and also a listener who wrote in asking if Yovanovitch's testimony, if, you know, it was sexist to uh, be questioning her about her feelings. I actually think that was Democrats trying to make normal people understand the situation because, like, they – it, it added some emotional heft to the moment where, you know, it wasn't just transcripts of phone calls and pe- people saying the wrong things and, like, some machinations going on in, in conference rooms or whatever. It was like a woman who was called in the middle of the night saying that she was going to be taken out on the next plane because she was unsafe when actually it was just that, you know, Trump was about to tweet a mean thing about her and the State Department wanted to prevent that from happening. Uh, and and that, you know, it actually, like, is affecting people's lives when Trump is uh, futzing with national security for his own interests. Um, I, and I feel like it's easier sometimes for people to understand how Trump, you know, wreaking havoc affects individual people than how it affects nations, which is kind of a screwed up thing. But like, I I think that maybe bringing um, personal impact into the story made Trump's offenses a little legible. I think they're doing similar things with um, Alexander Vindman about him being a refugee who becomes such a loyal American. And I know that Jennifer Williams um, was called today. And it's this idea that people who are not partisan, who will serve everyone. She talks about how Condoleezza Rice gave her her... oath of of duty or whatever, and how this was like an American she looked up to. So part of also the thing is to say that these people are believable, unlike their questioners, Mm. because they are they are true and real Americans. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know if any of this stuff works. um, But it's interesting to see how the strategy is so transparent, Mm -hmm. and how it how it resonates or doesn't resonate in its ability to stay within the news cycle. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, the part about the feelings, I, I, I guess it's hard to know when is it okay for a woman to express um, high emotion in these situations. You know, I think about the Kavanaugh hearing and, uh, you know, do we want them? And, and again, I guess this kind of goes back to the crown discussion we just had. Like how, like, should we be stoic and just stick to the facts? Or do we let a little bit of tremor in, you know, into our voice? Or, you know, what what's the proper amount of emotion to make sure people know, yes, this affected me. Yes, this was wrong. And I want something to, you know, come from it. And then wh- how, how do we figure that out? Yeah, I mean, that felt like that was the point of Adam Schiff asking Yovanovitch while she was testifying how it felt to have the president tweet about her while she was testifying, mm. um, which really, you know, what what actually is the point of that? It doesn't change anything mm-hmm. about the, the impeachment hearings, although it could actually be another form of intimidation. So maybe it does. Um, but in a sense, it also, I mean, it's what we've all been saying that this, to me, this all seems so obvious what's going on. It's it's like not even a very well-played um, play, a very well-played piece of drama. It's obvious who's, who's lying, who's putting on a show. And yet people on the other side of politics see it in exactly the opposite way. And therefore, it makes me wonder like, how can we break through that? When, it's, when we each see things apparently in such different ways, like maybe we just have to try all these weird things like, you know, hey, supremely uh, competent uh, foreign service official who's worked for 35 years and served at the very highest levels of your job. Let me ask you this question, because maybe this is the thing that will break through this crazy uh, nonsensical situation where people are seeing, you know, people who've served their country as uh people you know what do they call that crisis actors i mean like mm. it just there's there's so <laughs> there's so much nonsense that like you never know what's going to actually break the break the wall of, of like insanity yeah all right i think we've got to wrap up that's a great question to end on june <laughs> how do we break through what should we do listeners do you think it was a productive line of questioning to talk about feelings. Will it help Americans understand or was it sexist? Let us know what you think. The waves at slate.com is where you can reach us. Here at The Waves, we have been reading a new data analysis from Contexts magazine about hookups. Nicole, give us the details. Yeah, so Context magazine recently dropped a study. Um, they looked at 
20,000 American students at 21 colleges over a five-year period to learn about the differences in sexual behavior, um, specifically hookup culture. Um, They looked at um, white, black, Latinx, South Asian, and East Asian ethnic groups. And um, it's been really interesting because what was posited is that hookup culture is a white thing. Uh, Lisa Wade, who is a sociologist, um, recently had a book out called American Hookup, looking at the nature of, you know, the way people uh, go about having casual sex and if casual sex is a quote unquote white thing. Um, So what that means, I think, is looking at the ways that the different Um, ethnic groups feel about casual sex, marriage, having children, love and sex and that kind of stuff. And it turns out that uh, for the most part, everybody seems to be, you know, on the same page when it comes to getting married and having sex. Everybody, you know, there's like a 90 to 93 percent of people that they studied um, want to get married. 89 to 96 percent of the people want to have children. The big differences comes in um, casual sex and what people uh, determine hookup culture is. And I guess for the sake of this purpose or this discussion, we can say that hookup culture is casual sex, um, a series of one night stands. (laughs) You know, it could be something from just that one night at a party or maybe you just hang out for a month or so um, and then you move on to the next person. So uh, I found this really interesting because I think it looks at the way... (sighs) the ways race and gender affect our sexuality and our our sexual relationships. Um, It seems that black men tend to have more sex than any of the other um, groups. Black women have the least amount of sex. And I think stereotypes against black men and women particularly uh, contribute to that. And um, yeah, that was among people who have sex. There were high rates of being a virgin, I guess, would be right. the way to put it, in South and South Asian and East Asian uh, communities. Right. And the um, study says that that could be as a result of, you know, immigrant parents who are much more conservative than American um, parents. And so they, you know, impart that, uh, those beliefs onto their children. And, um, yeah, I think for black men and women, I think it also... Respectability politics is also a major factor in how they approach sex and sexuality. Um, what did what did y'all think of the study? <laughs> I think that the study is about sexual behavior and is trying to indicate something about sexual cultures. And I think those are two different things. So the survey asked a lot of people about their attitudes about hooking up and dating and marriage and sex and frequency and experience and number of partners. But I think the conclusions about if hookup culture is white is about the places in which people access sex and in what context. And so one of the things that I think this article indicates is on college campuses that were part of this study. I think that in environments that are predominantly white, the number of partner choices, I think, are fewer for most of the people of color in the study, but also the places in which students socialize in order to meet sexual partners. And so if a student of color is in a predominantly white campus, the odds that they are going to every type of party in every social situation and could potentially hook up is just not there. And I think that in some of these places in which you have these small communities within communities, issues of discretion and secret keeping and making sure people don't know about who you're hooking up with, I think that there's a premium on that. So I think that what this research is indicating is the different ways that young people um, feel like they have access to avenues for their social life. And then I think it's being represented in their responses about their activity. Yeah, I also read that, you know, in terms of the respondents to this study, the people who did the analysis looked at how age of first sexual experience Mm -hmm. um, affects, you know, their number of sexual partners in college and found that, you know, for as far as the discrepancy between white men and black men went, um, the discrepancy between their number of sexual partners uh, was like two thirds mitigated when you take into account the sexual partners that black men might have had in high school because 
because, you know, their age of first experience was younger, so they have more time to amass sexual partners because it was asking about total number of sexual partners, not just in college. Um, but when you talk about the opportunities that people have to um, have sex if they want to in college, I think it calls into question some of the ways that institutions can affect student sexual behavior or their attitudes about sex and their feelings of even safety about talking about sex. So when you talk about who might think like this support system or this Title IX representative or this campus support group, like, is that for me? Like, can I go there and talk about the sex that I'm having or not having? Um, I think that there's like sort of an assumption at a lot of schools and certainly among the general public that likes to assume that colleges are like havens for casual sex among every demographic. It definitely impacts the way like services for students are marketed um, because, you know, if if you're looking at, for instance, the fact that East Asian men, for instance, were half as likely as white or black men to have had sex outside an exclusive relationship. Um, and, you know, only half of white and black men were even having sex outside an exclusive relationship. So the idea that men are sort of going out and having sex and hooking up all the time, that that's the typical male thing to do, A, isn't accurate, mm-hmm. and B, could, like, also serve to make some men uh some men in particular feel like sexually or socially inadequate or alienated by their college communities if the narrative is that like casual sex is the thing people do in college. I went to an HBCU, a very small HBCU um, that's historically black college and university. And um, one of the things that's always been a marked difference between an HBCU and a PWI, um, predominantly white institutions, is um, the way that we handle fraternities. Very rarely will an HBCU have a fraternity row, fraternity houses, or things like that, which seem to contribute greatly to hookup culture, to the myth of hookup culture for a lot Mm -hmm. of white students. Um, And so black students at HBCUs don't have uh, this kind of... I don't want to say safe environment because we know that they're not always safe, but they don't have this kind of static environment for uh, engaging in the stereotypical college behaviors. I know when I was in school, and I don't know if it's still happening, it's been a long time, we would have vans that would take us to the party. You know, we would just, you know, hop in the van, go to the party that was either like in a hotel lobby or not a lobby, but like a, a ballroom or something or some little community, open space community thing, which again did not uh, lend itself to hook up, hooking up mm-hmm. there because it was a very open space. The lights would come on to tell everybody to go home and then we'd get back in the van or, you know, if we did meet someone, we would have to, you know, go away, find some place, you know, to <laughs> <laughs> indulge <laughs> whatever impulses. Um, and you'd have to see them in the light first. Yes. <laughs> could be a deterrent to like half of all college hookups. Yeah, so there, that is a marked difference, I think, in the way that we um, see hookup culture on these different universities, these different campuses. Um, so it's, that also contributes to the way black people are able to navigate hooking up. Um, and if, especially if you're in a small HBCU or in a small college, everyone knows your business. Everyone knows who you're with. Mm-hmm. And again, those kind of um, it's, it's very harmful to your social reputation. Um, if people see you constantly hooking up, one thing that stood out to me in the study, or as we were you know, researching this, um, the idea that personal affirmation through sexuality can lead to societal rejection. And that's very, uh, again, very important for people of color trying to figure out who they are and navigating those expectations, those cultural and societal expectations of themselves. And those are very different for women and men, I imagine. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The idea that your reputation might be destroyed. Yeah. I don't have much to say about this because uh, I did not go to college uh, here in the U.S. Um, but I have to say the thing that, and also I was not heterosexual in college, uh, and <laughs> the study uh, focuses on heterosexual yeah. behavior. Um, but if I, I have to say that I was surprised by the um, by the median number of what they called so beautifully intercourse partners because it was the, the numbers were relatively small they were yeah. much small and that was people who were having sex it did obviously did not count people who were virgins and you know the the highest median was four that was for black men um but most were around two mm-hmm. um and that 
again, does not comport with my uh, knowledge of American college, which comes exclusively from television. Uh, (laughs) That's like maybe that's one episode. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I and in Lisa Wade's research, you know, she she says that really it's just a small minority that's disproportionately white and wealthy who's having a ton of sex on college campuses and everyone else is sort of more moderate in there. Everyone's at their work study job trying to pay for college. I mean, I I think that's, I mean, part of what's interesting reading this and, you know, doing my own research on the nature of college and inclusion and social mobility is that there's this weird thing that um, what we imagine college, like you were saying, June, comes from TV and is all determined by what happens at Harvard. And <laughs> so the critical mass of what we call college students are people who are working, who are over you know, 24 years old, who are former military, who have family and dependents. And so we're really talking about a sliver of youth culture and an even smaller sliver that can have enough time to have sex all the time. <laughs> but yeah. the reason why this group, even though they're a minority, is important is because they then determine in the cultural conversation and the rhetoric about young people and the contemptuous articles in the New York Times about the lack of, you know, kind of relationships and commitments among young people. I think the two wrenches in all of this is the fact that dating apps are used, I think, across a wider swath of young people, whether they're in college or not. And so this also impacts, I think, accessibility to potential sexual partners. And the fact that, you know, um, this behavior doesn't necessarily have to mean anything, but I think what it does, it contributes then to the discourse that they're a generation of people who can't commit yeah. and mm-hmm. what's going to happen to the nature of the family because of all this hooking up. And so I think that this re- research is important and often, unfortunately, applied um, across class, race, and all sorts of social differences that don't really give us a picture of how people live. Yeah, so the idea that hookup culture is for the white and wealthy, Marsha's um, mentioning work study makes me think of this idea of who is allowed, who can afford the consequences of hookup culture from unexpected pregnancies, medicine, if any, you know, if anybody catches any creepy crawlies, like whatever, um, those kinds of things. And that's not just financial, but also, again, social. All right, that's all the time we have for intercourse partners. Uh, (laughs) Listeners, if you went to college, I would love to hear about how you felt about hookup culture at your school. If it existed, who did it exist for? You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Recommendation time. We've reached it. Who wants (laughs) to go first? I can go first. Um, I would like to recommend a makeup product, something a little different this week. Mm. Uh, it is Farsali Skin Tune Blur Perfecting Primer Serum. It's Whoa. a long title. Wow. <laughs> the more words in a product, the better it is. <laughs> so the um, Skin Tune Blur is a primer. It just smooths everything out. It does blur. It's basically a filter for your face in in, in wow. person. It's a little pricey. It's $54 for the bottle, but it is worth Worth it. You don't need a lot. You can use it without foundation. Um, I tend to use it when I'm just going out, but I don't want to put foundation on or be, you know, have a lot of heavy makeup on. So I will just put a couple of dabs on my T zone, which is like my forehead and nose, um, and a little bit on my cheeks, and it will just kind of. Well, it doesn't close your pores because that's not technically a thing, really. And any esthetician will tell you you can't close your pores. Um, But it just kind of like makes them disappear. And so you do have it looks like you have much smoother skin. So Farsali Skin Tune Blur Perfecting Primer (laughs) Serum. (laughs) For those of you who are into makeup, I strongly encourage you to get it. I think my recommendation has to be something with only a couple of words in it. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to endorse a podcast called Poem Talk, um, Mm. which I should say I'm going to be on this podcast. I'm going to be taping it later this week in Philadelphia. And I have I'm a kind of person who I basically know nothing about anything, but I never let that stop me from talking about it. It's not true, June. Stop it. I never let that stop me. But. Poetry is the one that I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's the one thing I'm intimidated by. Um, But nevertheless, I'm not going to let that stop me from being on it. But so to prepare myself, I listened to a bunch of episodes and... Oh, my God, it is so good. It's basically poets, which I am not, talking about poems and just kind of breaking them down and interpreting them and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. 
And having... I, yeah, I thought I would just listen to one. I found myself listening to pretty much every episode in the extensive archives. And I think genuinely that I learned more about poetry and kind of breaking things down um, from listening to people do that than I did in my entire like formal education. It was just very like rigorous, but also fun. It, these poets and, and other, the people who were on the show were, did not take themselves like they were not stuck up, I guess you would say. Um, so I really recommend it if you have even the vaguest interest in kind of hearing a poem discussed. And they always play the uh, the uh, poet reading the poem too. That's part of oh, the process. Oh, I love that. Um, so I really recommend it. Poem talk. That sounds great. Um, I'm going to recommend a piece from Jezebel by Rich Juzwiak who happens to be a Slate columnist. Rich co-writes How to Do It, our sex advice column. It's called The Strange Sad Story of the Ken Doll's Crotch. And it's <laughs> all about the crotch of the Ken Doll. It's history, it's shape. Uh, it draws together a lot of previous reporting on the topic from you know books about the history of Barbie and Ken. Um, and I found it so fascinating, the fact that there were two competing camps when Kendall was being designed about how uh, anatomically correct the Kendall's crotch should be. <laughs> and now it's sort of become, you know, a cultural punchline about like, oh, he, he, you know, when you're talking about an emasculated man or something um, to talk about like the Kendall's crotch and how he doesn't have a penis down there and whatever. Um, but the story is like a real whirlwind of uh, you know, manufacturing considerations, the cost of plastic, um, and also like fears about young girls' sexual imaginations. Uh, you know, and and also the notion of men having a thing down there while women have nothing. Like there was no conversation about whether to make Barbie a vulva. Um, so I learned a lot. It made me want to like sit inside some doll design meetings because I feel mm -hmm. like it made people think about the human body in really bizarre ways. Um, it's called The Strange Sad Story of the Kendall's Crotch. Read it. Uh, Marsha, what do you have for us? My recommendation is a history book called <laughs> She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman by Ooh. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who um, had incredible success with her book Never Caught about Ona Judge, the enslaved woman owned by George Washington, who escaped slavery. Um, Dunbar is back with an accessible illustrated history of Harriet Tubman. Many of you have seen the Harriet film in theaters, but if you want to know more and actually share um, this very important piece of women's history with younger readers, um, your high school age people, as well as folks who don't usually read history, I think um, this is an excellent introduction. So she came to slay. The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman is available now. Sounds really good. That's our show for today. Thank you so much to Sarah Burningham, who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Asha Saluja and Melissa Kaplan, who provided production assistance. For Marcia Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening.